Hello. Before we begin, a quick note. The Boy to Sleep podcast relies on you and sponsors, which means you will hear a quick advertisement before the beginning of tonight's episode. While the podcast is free, you are welcome to subscribe for just $2.99 per month, which supports the creation of this podcast and gives you an ad-free listening experience. Simply click the link in the show notes from your podcast app. Rest easy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from a book named From Trail to Railway Through the Appalachians, published in 1906 and written by Albert Perry Brigham. This story looks at the early development of the railways in Boston and New York. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Whether it be through the website or your podcast app, one of the most rewarding aspects of this podcast is hearing from all of the listeners who found the podcast beneficial with getting a good night's rest. As always, thank you to all existing patrons and Spotify sponsors and everyone who took time to leave a response in the Spotify Q&A. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone, and it's the support from listeners via Patreon that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial, please be sure to subscribe, as that really helps out. And of course, share the podcast with a friend who might also need a good night's rest. If you would like, you can always say hello to me at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. From Trail to Railway Through the Appalachians By Albert Perry Brigham Preface This book grows out of conviction that geography in the schools 
must return somewhat to human interests. In saying this, the author will scarcely need to defend himself against the charge of undervaluing physiography. It is only a question of wise adaptation to youthful students. Elementary history also needs to be placed in its setting of physical conditions. It is here attempted to promote both these objects in the study of the Eastern United States. If geography and history can be well correlated, both of these great themes may be taught with economy of time and with stronger interest. Much more might be said concerning the growth of centres, the agriculture and the commerce, but the limits of space are rigid. Hence roads and westward movements have been made the main topic. The geography is not taught formally, but is woven in with the story. Care has been given to the maps of several regions, that they should clearly express the essentials and avoid the vagueness of many small-scale representations of the Appalachian Belt. Colgate University, October 1906 From Trail to Railway, Chapter 1 Boston and the Berkshires from the time of the settlement of Massachusetts, Boston has had a large share of the businesses of the country. Her natural advantages are great. On the one hand, there is her harbour, sheltered by many islands from the storms of the Atlantic. On the other are tidal rivers and level highways leading to the interior of the state. Emerson, who was born in Boston, wrote, Each street leads downward to the sea, or landward to the west. For generations, as the city has grown, her people have been crowding back the ocean by filling in the shallows, and now her busy streets extend over acres of made land, while from the south... The west and the north lines of railway connect her with all parts of America. Not many years after the War of the Revolution, a Boston merchant ship went around the world. She took on board a native at Hawaii, sold her load of furs in Canton, rounded Cape Horn, and anchored at length in Boston Harbour. So great an achievement did this seem that Governor Hancock and the people said fine things and made merry. The little ship was 83 feet long and you could measure off seven or eight times her length on one of the big liners of today. Later, the same ship set sail again and on the west coast of America... In one of the roughest seas, her master, Captain Gray, saw the mouth of a great river. He was determined to enter it. Having crossed the breakers, 
he set up the river more than 20 miles, and today it bears the name of his ship, the Columbia. Boston was reaching out into the wide world. Many years later, this discovery had much to do with securing the rights of the United States in the Oregon country against the claims of Great Britain. Young lads often went out on these voyages, and the training made them strong men. There were dangers on the ocean then which today we do not fear, for pirates still lay in wait for merchantmen, and foreign powers took liberties with American ships. One vessel seen in Boston Harbour was named Catch Me If You Can. Many years later, when Mr. Samuel Kennard of Halifax took a contract to carry the Royal Mail between Liverpool and America, there was an immediate protest from the Boston merchants against ending the voyage at Halifax. They urged the great commercial advantage of having the ships run westward to Boston after stopping at Halifax. And so powerful were these arguments that the first canard liners came steaming into Massachusetts Bay. This was not pleasant for New York people, who tried to show that theirs was the better port. As if to help in the fight against Boston, the harbour froze over in the winter of 1844, and the canard ship the Britannia could not sail. Determined to hold their own, the Boston people engaged Frederick Tudor, a great exporter of ice, to bring his machinery from the fresh water ponds and cut away. He soon made a lane of open water, and the Britannia sailed out for Liverpool. While ocean trade was growing much had been done on the land. Settlements were first made at Plymouth, Salem and Boston, and as soon as possible the rough forest trails joining these towns were changed into roads. Many ferries and bridges were needed to cross the streams, and roads were carried back into the country as the people settled farther from the sea. After Providence was begun in the Narragansett country, and the rich lands along the Connecticut were settled, there was need of roads across the hills of Massachusetts, so that the colonists could visit each other and exchange letters. The highway leading along the east coast was called Bay Road, a post rider went between Boston and New York in 1704, and a rough path he had to travel. It was thought remarkable four years later that a woman, Madame Sarah Knights, made that journey. She afterwards taught school in Boston, and Benjamin Franklin was one of her pupils. Somebody scratched these lines on a window pane in her schoolroom. Through many toils and many frights, 
I have returned, poor Sarah Knights. Over great rocks and many stones, God has preserved from fractured bones. There is no doubt about the great rocks and many stones of New England, but around Boston, at any rate, one usually sees them now at a safe distance. In western Massachusetts is the great Berkshire country. Through most of its length, the Housatonic River runs to the southward. At the north, the Hoosick River flows from it, across a corner of Vermont, to the Hudson. On the first is beautiful Pittsfield, and on the second is busy North Adams with its mills. In sight everywhere are the mountains, not very high and usually covered with forest, but sometimes bold and rocky. Farther north, we should call them the Green Mountains, but here we name them the Berkshires. The eastern range which separates the Housatonic Valley on the west from the Connecticut Valley on the east is Hoosac Mountain, of which we shall hear again. These long ranges of mountains run from north to south, and while it was easy to follow the valleys between them, it was hard to go across them from east to west or from west to east. Boston and all the chief towns of New England lay eastward, and the rest of the country was west of the mountains, if a Massachusetts family wished to settle in the fertile lands of western New York or Ohio, they had to cross the mountains. In our day, the mountain region is full of towns and beautiful summer homes, but then it was a wilderness which in places was almost impossible if it was difficult to make a single journey between the Connecticut River and the Hudson, it was quite out of the question to carry grain and fruit from the west to Boston and to bring back in exchange the goods made in her factories. Near Pittsfield, in the heart of the Berkshires, rises the Westfield River, which has cut a deep valley eastward through the mountains. Opposite the place where this stream enters the Connecticut, the beautiful city of Springfield has now grown up, partly on the low grounds and partly on a terrace. It is readily seen that the Westfield Valley forms a natural roadway from here, westward to Pittsfield, and on toward Albany and the Mohawk in New York. We cannot say that the valley was made for the cities, but the cities were made in part at least, because the valley was there. The people of Boston first said, We will build another canal up the Hoosick and down the Deerfield Valley, and then the canal boats will keep on to the east. As states often do, they appointed a commission to see if the canal could be built, and what it would cost. But what were they to do about Hoosick Mountain, 
which stood a thousand feet high of solid rock. Between the Husik Valley on the west and the Deerfield Valley on the east. They decided that they would tunnel it for the waterway. Rather strangely, they thought it could be done for a little less than a million dollars. A wise engineer made the survey for the canal, and when he remarked, it seems as if the finger of Providence had pointed out this route from the east to the west. Someone who stood near replied, It's a great pity that the same finger wasn't thrust through the mountain. The plans for the canal were finally given up. And, though many years later, such a tunnel was made, it was not for a canal, nor was the work done for a million dollars. Everyone was talking now of railways, but few thought that rails could be laid across the Berkshires. It was even said in a Boston paper that such a road could never be built to Albany, that it would cost as much to do it all as Massachusetts would sell for, and that if it should be finished, everybody with common sense knew it would be as useless as a railroad from Boston to the moon. We need not be too hard on this rider, for it was five years later when the DeWitt Clinton train climbed the hill from Albany and carried its handful of passengers to Schenectady. One of the friends of the railway scheme was Abner Phelps. When he was a senior at Williams College in 1806, he had thought of it for he had heard about the tram cars in the English coal regions. In 1826, he became a member of the legislature of Massachusetts, and the second day he was there, he proposed that the road should be built. In time the project went through, but at first it was planned to pull the cars with horses, and on the downgrades to take the horses on the cars and let them ride. We do not know how it was intended that the cars should be held back, for it was long before the invention of air brakes. The line was built to its western end on the Hudson in 1842, and thus Boston, Worcester, Springfield and Albany were bound together by iron rails. There was only a single track, and the grades were heavy. The road brought little trade to Boston, and most of the goods from the west still went by way of the Hudson to New York. It was, however, a beginning, and it showed that the mountain wall could be crossed. The subject of a Husik tunnel now came up again. It would take a long time to tell how the tunnel was made. Indeed, it was a long time in making. It was begun in 1850 or soon afterwards, and the work went slowly with many stops and misfortunes. 
so that the hole through the mountain was not finished until November 27th, 1873. On that day, the last blast was set off, which made the opening from the east to the west side, and the first regular passenger train ran through July 8th, 1875, 50 years after it had been planned to make a canal under the mountain. In order to help on the work, the engineers sunk a shaft a thousand feet deep from the top of the mountain to the level of the tunnel, and from the bottom worked east and west. This gave them four faces, or headings, on which to work, instead of two, and hastened the finishing. The whole cost was about $14 million. It took great skill to sink the shaft on just the right line, and to make the parts of the tunnel exactly meet, as the men worked in from opposite directions. They brought the ends together under the mountain, with a difference of only five sixteenths of an inch. You can measure this on a fingernail and see how much it is. The tremendous task was successfully accomplished, and Boston was no longer shut off from the rest of the country by the mountains. The end of it all is not that Boston has won all the ships away from New York, but that gradually she has been getting her share. Now she has great Canadas, white star liners, and the Leyland boats, all giant ships sailing for Liverpool, and many other stately vessels bound for southern ports or foreign lands. Now you may see in Boston Harbour, not a forest of masts, but great funnels painted to show the lines to which the boats belong, and marking a grander commerce than that which put out for the Indies long years ago. For today, Boston is the second American port. The great freight yards of the railways are close upon the docks, and travellers from the west may come into either of two great stations, one of which is the largest railway terminal in the world. In and about Boston are more than a million people, reaching out with one hand for the riches of the great land to the west, and with the other passing them over the seas to the nations on the farther side. Man has taken a land of dense forests, stony hills, and wild valleys and subdued it. It is dotted with cities, crossed by roads, and is one of the great gateways of North America. If a stranger from a distant land should come to New York, he might take an elevated train at the Battery and ride to the upper end of Harlem. He would then have seen Manhattan Island, so named by the Indians who but 300 years ago 
and built their wigworms there and paddled their canoes in the waters, where great ships now wait for their cargoes. If the visitor should stay for a time, he might find that Harlem used to be spelled Harlem, from a famous old town in Holland. He might walk through Bleecker Street or Cortland Street or see Stuyvesant Square and learn that these hard names belonged to old Dutch families and if he studied history, he would find that the town was once called New Amsterdam and was settled by Dutchmen from Holland. They named the river to the west of the island the Great North River to distinguish it from the Delaware or Great South River and they planned to keep all the land about these two streams and to call it New Netherland. Rocks and trees covered most of Manhattan Island at the time but the Dutch had a small village at its south end where they built a fort and set up windmills, which ground the corn and made the place look like a new town in Holland. The Indians did not like the windmills, with their big teeth biting the corn in pieces, but they were usually friendly with the settlers, sometimes sitting before the fireplaces in the houses and eating sapon or marshened milk. All this came about because Henry Hudson, with a Dutch vessel, the Half Moon, had sailed into the harbour in 1609, and had explored the river for a long distance from its mouth. Hudson was an Englishman, but with most people, he has had to pass for a Dutchman. He has come down in stories as Hendrik instead of Henry no doubt because he commanded a ship belonging to a Dutch company, and because a Dutch colony was soon planted at the mouth of the river, which he discovered. Hudson spent a month of early autumn about Manhattan, and on the river which afterwards took his name. Sailing was easy for the channel is cut so deep into the land that the tides which rise and fall on the ocean border by day and night push far up the Hudson and make it like an inland sea. In what we call the Highlands Hudson found the river narrow, with rocky cliffs rising far above him, Beyond he saw lowlands covered with trees and stretching west to the foot of the Catskill Mountains. He went as far, at least, to a place where Albany now stands, but there he found the water shallow and turned his ship about, giving up the idea of reaching the Indies by going that way. He did not know that a few miles to the west a deep valley lies open through the mountains, a valley which is now full of busy people and is more important for travel and trade than a dozen northwest passengers to China would be. It was not long before this valley, 
which leads to the west was found by a real Dutchman. Only five years after Hudson's voyage, Dutch traders built a fort near the spot where Albany now stands. Shortly afterwards, in 1624, the first settlers came and founded Fort Orange, which is now Albany. Aunt Van Curler came over from Holland in 1630 and made his home near Fort Orange. He was an able man and became friendly with the Indians. They called him Brother Corlear and spoke of him as their good friend. A few years ago, a diary kept by Van Curler was found in an old Dutch garret where it had lain for 260 years. It told the story of a journey that he made in 1634, only four years after he came to America. Setting out on December 11, he travelled up the valley of the Mohawk until he reached the home of the Oneida Indians in central New York. He stayed with them nearly two weeks and then returned to Fort Orange, where he arrived on January 19. This is the earliest record of a white man's journey through a region, which now contained large towns and is traversed by many railway trains every day in the year. No one knows how long there had been Indians and Indian trails in the Mohawk Valley. These trails Van Curler followed, often coming upon some of the red men themselves, and visiting them in a friendly way. They, as well as the white settlers who followed them, chose the flat, rich lands along the river. From here, it was easy to beat a path, and with their bark canoes, they could travel and fish. The Indians entertained Van Curler with baked pumpkins, turkey, bear meat and venison. As the turkey is an American bird, we may be sure that it was new to the Dutch explorer. When Van Curler made his journey into the Indian country, he did not reach the Mohawk River at once on leaving Fort Orange but travelled for about 16 miles across a sandy and half-barren stretch of scrubby pine woods. He came down to the river where its rich bottom lands spread out widely and where several large islands are enclosed by parts of the stream. South and east of these flats are the sand barrens and on the west are high hills through which by a deep, narrow gap, the Mohawk flows. The Indians call this place Shonau, or Gateway. It was well named for entering by this gate. One can go to the foot of the Rocky Mountains without climbing any heights. A few years before his death, Van Curler led a small band of colonists from Fort Orange bought the great flats from the Mohawk Indians and founded a town calling it Schenectady 
which is the old Indian name changed in its spelling. The traveller of today on the New York Central Railway sees on Curler's Great Flats the flourishing city of Schenectady with its shops and houses, its college, and its vast factories for the manufacture of locomotives and electrical supplies. It is true that the Dutch pioneers play an important part in the early history of the state and are still widely represented by their descendants in the Mohawk Valley. But the leading spirit of colonial days on the river was a native of Ireland who came when a young man to manage his uncle's estates in America. This was in 1738. The young man who was in confidence of the governor of New York and of the king as well is known to all readers of American history as Sir William Johnson. He built a fine stone mansion a short distance west of the present city of Amsterdam and lived there for many years. He also founded Johnstown, a few miles to the north, now a thriving little city. He dealt honestly with the Indians when many tried to get their lands by fraud and he served as a high officer in the French and Indian Wars. As the Dutch settled the lower Mohawk Valley, so the upper parts were taken up by the forests cleared by Yankees from New England. One of these was Hugh White, a sturdy man with several grown children. He left Middletown, Connecticut, in 1784 and came by water to Albany, sending one of his sons overland to drive two pair of oxen. Father and son met in Albany and went together across the sands to Schenectady, where they bought a boat to take some of the goods up to the river. Four miles west of where Utica now stands, they stopped cut a few trees and built a hut to shelter them until they could raise crops and have a better home. Thus, the ancient village of Whitesboro was now founded. White was one of many hardy and brave men who settled in central New York at that time, and they doubtless thought that they had gone a long way out west. Certainly their journey took more time than the emigrant would now need to reach California or Oregon. One settler cleared several acres and planted corn with pumpkin seeds sprinkled in. The pigeons pulled up all the corn, but hundreds of great pumpkins grew and ripened. Since the crop was hardly enough, however, for either men or beasts, the latter had to be fed the next winter on the small top boughs of the elm, maple, and basswood. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, and I also hope you are feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode 
of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.